Welcome back. Never sleepers, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Ross Never Sleeps. I'm your host, Alex Ross. Be sure to check out NeverSleepsNetwork.com every week for brand new Toronto-based podcasts. Every Tuesday, you can hear LA-based, formerly from Toronto, comedian Stephen Shahori and his co-star, still based out of Toronto, Lisa Schwartzman. Every Tuesday, the 7-ish minute podcast you better don't is a hilarious dose of weekly comedy and next week nick beaton's this is not a safe space is all new with guest dom Perret, and these two brilliant comedians go on for well over an hour and a half and they're incredible together you definitely have to check out this is not a safe space and launching december 7th all new podcast jeff paul the human potato himself is launching The Potato Files on NSN. His first guest, Rob Pugh. A must-listen as Jeff goes one-on-one with comedians and artists from all over Canada. In this episode of RNS, I sit down with Sarah Starkman, blogger who evolved into a comedian. Her blog, StickySituations.tumblr, is a very personal and very funny approach to writing. And it's great that she's made her foray into comedy. She's been doing it for a while now. She's very talented. I really, really enjoyed her set last time I saw her at the Underground. She's just not afraid to be herself. And that's my kind of comedian. She's promoting her monthly show, called the McQueens of Comedy, which is at McQueens Pub in the east end of Toronto, 993 Queen Street East. Her next show, December 8th, features an NSN family member from Phil in the... Phil Luzzi, one of our favorite McQueens over there on December 8th. Check out that show. In this episode of RNS, it's basically like two old friends who aren't old friends getting together and talking about what they know best <laughs> themselves. But in all seriousness, Sarah and I are two non religious reformed Jews who have this weird appreciation for all things Asia. It must have something to do with our Christmas dinners spent with our grandparents, in my case, at Szechuan Gourmet. I guess it's a Jewish thing. Sarah is very open and honest and just easy to chat with. Her comedy style is very similar to just who she is, which is why she is so funny. And if you've ever wanted a comedian to make you feel like your old friends, check out my chat with the talented Sarah Starkman on this episode of Ross never sleeps. So you live in the beaches? Have you always lived in the beaches? Uh, no, it's been a year and a bit. Okay. Is that your first transition to Toronto? No. So. I, li- I lived in Leslieville before. Okay. But then uh, crackheads moved into my basement and robbed us blind. So we were like, mm, maybe safety and security is good. Uh, I actually can admit that I've had that feeling when you come, not here, but uh, to an apartment that has been stripped bare by people not even your apartment just like you open up all your drawers and you're like yep 
or like later on you walk around you're like yeah they took that too and i didn't realize it till now oh it's the worst they went through my underwear drawer like it's just so invasive so you moved from Toronto, like, I mean, I, from your act, I, I understand you have Eastern European Jewish parents. So similarly, I'm a Jew from Thornhill. Okay. So I always ask, are you from Toronto proper? Are you from the Burbs? Are you from one of the hills? Are you from, are you from Montreal? The hills, it makes his hands so glamorous. But that's what it is. Kind of is. Yeah. Forest it, especially. As glamorous as it seems on like say the television show is just as glamorous as it seems <laughs> when you're there. When you're there. <laughs> like Kiva's. But it's not. Yeah. No, you know, shout not. out <laughs> to the hard bagel lovers. <laughs> no I am from North York and then I went to school in Montreal and then I went and lived in uh, England in London for a couple of years and then when I moved back I was like Leslieville's cool you know quirky and covered in crackheads and then and then out to the beach we went so you moved to uk mm-hmm. met your now fiance right and convinced him to move to canada with you uh, it was it uh, was an easy sell he had always he never planned to live in england for too long oh great yeah it was very easy to get him over and then he came over here and was like i love this look no at how way. big my fridge is yeah okay <laughs> what are his like comical kind of day-to-day like i'm in canada now you know what he's traveled all over the world so it was a very somewhat easy transition because culturally, I mean, it's not as strange as when he was like backpacking through northern China. Right, absolutely. Um, it's more being exposed to a Jewish family. Like he never had a bagel before. Like he just never had like dense bread baked over fire. But like, no, no, but but boiled and then baked. Right, boiled right? and baked. Maybe boiled in honey water. And then baked. So he was, yeah, never, he never had a bagel. And it's funny, like Yiddish terms are now worked into his vocabulary, but it's so hilarious because he has a British accent. So it's like, oh, babe, it's just so fucked. (laughs) (laughs) So how'd you meet him? Oh, such a strange, um, long and short of it is he was living in Australia and a girlfriend of mine was there too. And I saw a picture of them together and I wrote on the photo and was like, hubba hubba. And she was like, you guys would actually really like each other. So he added me to Facebook and we had like a year long Skype relationship. And then I saved up all my money and he picked me up in Heathrow Airport. And then I didn't come home until two years later with him. You moved to UK for a boy. I did. I did. And it's successful. Right? I know. It could have gone very badly. But I mean, you know, like I'd Skyped with his grandma. Like I knew he wasn't a serial killer. I Um, always Skype with their grandmother first. (laughs) That's the move. That is. That's That's, a good way to know. Absolutely. (laughs) So now you're living in the beaches. Great. Toronto, East End. Lots of comedy. Lots of venues out there. The Danforth's trying harder. Well, I saw you at uh, the Underground, which is my favorite East. I mean, it's the only reason I go... East? East. Oh, yeah, let's let's be honest. West. Well, that and stuff like that can't really exist in the West End, I feel. Uh, not yet, at least. Like, I feel like it has to be a little bit more of a quieter neighborhood, yeah. not a lot of foot traffic. You want the right people that's curated. And especially, and I'm not even just saying that for a pot room. I'm saying that for a comedy club. Yeah. It's amazing the type of people that you'll get in a West End club versus a Central Club versus an East End club. I mean, obviously, the, the people that are going to Yuck Yucks aren't generally the same people that are going to the underground. Not at all. Let alone the comedy bar. You know what I mean? So it's it's definitely a preferred audience. That's why I think it's got this weird magic of neighborhood 
you know, being a pot room, uh, being only, you know, our listeners who are cool enough to enjoy and embrace that kind of, you know, progressive society that Canada is developing. So I'm a big fan. Would I ever live in the East End? Maybe in 10 years, maybe in five <laughs> years. But is that I, retirement for you? Yeah. Well, I'm a East. Toronto boy. Like, yeah. yeah. So I, I grew up in, in Thornhill, moved into this place. I've been here for about eight years. Oh, wow. Straight from Toronto. Straight from Toronto. To yeah. I haven't had a, had a reason to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Not Toronto. So it's funny. I relate to a lot of your humor. We're fairly simil- similar in the sense that our parents come from almost similar places. Mine are more of a watered-down, second-generation Canadian version of that. Uh, we still present, uh, possess the same kind of Jewish reform mannerisms, yeah. passed-down gene deficiencies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I wanted to talk to you about your one thing that stuck out on your blog, Sticky Situations. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a Tumblr blog. You did this one article about your distinct for alcohol now yeah i feel like that comes from like a jewish background i didn't grow up with wine on the table you know there was no beers being you know what i mean when i talk when i hang out with my friends now they're they love me i'm constantly the dd (laughs) you know my girlfriend especially she's like you don't want to drink at thanksgiving dinner i was like what's thanksgiving dinner (laughs) and and i actually there was one opportunity where i finally did get to drink at one of these events because I wasn't driving for the one time, and I had like a g- glass and a half of wine. You wasted. I was. I was. It was ridiculous. The best. You're the cheapest date. It, it. And then for like an hour and a half, you're like, you know, I could see why people drink. And then, and then I passed out. Woke up feeling the worst. The worst. And you're like, why? Why do people do this? Uh, what are your favorite kind of Jewish mannerisms? These gene deficiencies, as as you love to joke about, and I love to joke about, because it's true. We're not built like our friends. No. I can't. I can't drink with my friends anymore. And age doesn't help either. And I, so I'm also with a British man. And so he doesn't understand how, like, for me, I'm like a half a pint of beer. And I'm like, ugh, <laughs> my stomach and like all this kind of stuff. And he's just, you know, it's like a human garburator. Yeah, they drink four pints in an evening. And like, that's no problem. Like- that's like 32 pieces of bread. I found that out recently. Yes, th- that's what I wanted to talk to you about. You have this amazing line, uh, something along the lines of chewing is just better than sipping in general, in, in reference to like, I personally would rather eat, I like dinner, and then I like second dinner. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to have dinner than drinks. Doesn't make sense. Hey, do you guys want to go for dinner and drinks? I was like, how about we go for dinner and then we'll go dance or like party or something. And then four hours later, I'll be hungry. Exactly. Like, let's go hit a diner. Totally. So I like that. Chewing is better than sipping in general. A hundred percent. That's that is like I feel like people now that pot culture is is becoming more you know, apparent in our in mm-hmm. our in our lives. Mm-hmm. People rather just like go to a, a restaurant, maybe smoke a joint before, smoke a joint after. If you're adding wine, if you're adding all this beer, I just don't understand how you can consume that much extra. Like, I can't have a whole steak and a glass of red wine. Yeah, no, I just pass out. What are your kind of food tendencies? What are your, you know, how I'm do you... Like human, pack woman, just, just pack womaning my way through life. Like, what are my weaknesses in sure. terms of food? Oh, everything. It's horrible. No, bagels. It is my biggest weakness. And it's so hard because if you ever try... I have one blog actually where, because I had this moment where I 
I really wanted to try and cut back on gluten and dairy because it is so hard on your system. And I'm such a like sensitive little Polak that like I'll just get like itchy and fat if I eat like three bagels <laughs> or like I smell them. And, and then I realized everything delicious is like some sort of combination of bread and cheese. Absolutely. Everything. You're a pasta lover. I do. I do love pasta. I love everything. Yeah. I'm so not just dis- and I love to cook as well. You can eat cheese and I- dairy. Like without, like I can't. Like I, I call it having a Jewish stomach. Like I just, I cannot consume it. Uh, it's like the quality and the quantity. Absolutely. I, but come on, if I see a cheese plate, I don't care if it's oh, it's quantity or quality. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna put out some brie and crackers. It's over. Yeah, some jelly. I'm into this the, the spicy jellies now that oh, go on yes. cheese and stuff. Delicious. I'm a finger food guy. I like yes. little Picking. little bites. Yes, yeah, noshing or we always called it picnicking in, in in my house. Just grab every little thing from the fridge, throw it on the counter, and then someone would walk in and be like. Started a picnic. All right. It's We're the into best, this. Yeah, right? absolutely. That's my favorite part of traveling is like cleaning out the fridge and the cupboards before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's our Passover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Instead of burning it, though, just like consuming it. Burning it? Do people burn it? But that's for Passover. You're I didn't supposed realize to you take, burned it. Which is very wasteful. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess back in the day in the desert didn't matter but they took all the stuff and then they just like lit all the bread on fire i know for people who have a holiday that are worried about eight days of oil lasting and then just going and burning all their bread <laughs> their leavened bread and like uh, five months later <laughs> we're a bunch of weirdos so your your uk non-jewish boyfriend's now like having like hanukkah dinners and or like right, friday yeah. night dinners you, yeah. is, that, is that is that the shtick now for you yeah. guys it's my he uh he's really embraced it Good. And really really that's loves fun it. i think that's what's important right as long as they're open to both each other's traditions and and all that kind of stuff is your mom a good cook i'm i'm a better cook Oh. I hope she doesn't listen to this. No, I she mean, knows. She probably will it's be fine. listening to yeah, this. She totally will. I'm telling all of her <laughs> friends. Um yeah, she's not bad. She doesn't she doesn't have a passion for it, I think, mm. which is where where the sort of like that je ne sais quoi that makes a dish really special sort of lacks. Sure. If you don't have a, a passion for it. Yeah, that je ne sais quoi my mother lacks is called spices. <laughs> Marination. My yeah. mom didn't know what a marinade was yeah. for years. My family's I kid you not, afraid of garlic. No. Yeah, like my, it's like a common conversation to how like dinner, someone would be like, guys, this this tastes really weird. What is that? I was like, oh, this is really delicious. Did you put garlic in this? That's it. It's garlic. <laughs> I knew you guys trying to poison me. I'm like, I think you guys have confused garlic. Jewish vampires. Yeah, serious. Oh, Maybe we are pale are. enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And some of us have gone way older than we ever expected. <laughs> so who's hosting the dinners in your, in your family? Are you? Are you? Able to do the full family dinners? Uh, no. So sometimes I help my mom, but it's also, um, so it's kind of sad. We have quite a small family and all of a lot of our extended family has passed on. So it's usually dinners with, with close family friends. Great. Which so, is better. It is. It's really be nice. It is. It's really nice. I, I mean, prefer it, those people. It would be nice if my grandparents could be there, but, but they can't. No, they can't. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we're, we're going to stick with the people that can physically make it. <laughs> Beggars can be choosers. So just like all Jews, you have this appreciation for Asian culture. I do. I'm a huge, I don't know what it is. The I don't dumplings. Know. <laughs> we love the dumplings. We do love dumplings. I think that's like between our kreplas and their every dumpling. And their dim sum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder, it's funny because... Jews are just this weird mix of Europeans for the most part. Mm -hmm. So the fact that any kind of culture that actually penetrated Europe is where they would have gotten any kind of influence because it's not like all these poor Europe, Eastern Europeans were like, hey, let's go to China for the yeah. for the week and hang out. <laughs> it's it's obviously a lot of Asian people who migrated or was going, you know, to the West or, or whomever. So it's amazing how some of our cultures overlapped. Totally. I mean, I'm not, I'm totally atheist and I don't believe in the Torah and all this kind of like fairy tales. I like the stories. Did you know, right? I think that's how it, we kind of are raised, everyone, every religion is kind of raised on the same stories. It's right. just like, if it's not Jack and Jill, it's Moses and Muhammad. You know right. what I mean? It's it's the same kind of, uh, you know, moral, moral, uh, what am I saying? Fear-mongering <laughs> lesson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> morals, morals right, is sure. what I'm saying. As a Jew who loves Christmas time with his late grandfather at a specific next to Kiva's actually Szechuan Gourmet is uh, the Chinese restaurant that we would go to on Christmas time you have recently traveled throughout Asia you you were saying uh, your partner is uh, Asian traveled he is Asian traveled right did you and you guys recently I think on your engagement trip of sorts you went to Kyoto you went to Tokyo you were all over Japan yeah we just we just did Japan I want to say that this was not an engagement moon because I feel like that's just such a horribly privileged thing. People are like, we haven't, like, just, it's awful. But um, I, I didn't know that he was going to propose to me. It was a big surprise. We just did. It was our five-year anniversary, and we hadn't gone on a trip in a while. And we both loved to travel, and we got some cheap tickets, and we were like, let's do it. Were the, is it those flights that were, like, under 700 bucks? There was, like, these flight sales Why that were going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. That's I actually went to South Korea. I went to Seoul. Cool. For $467 Stop. round trip. But were you flying on, like, a Russian propeller jet? You know what? I was actually flying the Russian propeller jet. <laughs> that was the only stipulation. That was like, yeah. Um, no, I was on Delta. Cool. Yeah. And it was great. And I had the whole road to myself. It was a oh. huge plane that just, I guess, they just couldn't get rid of seats. And it was Best. a November flight. It was off season. And I, I mean, I could go to Seoul every day. Like you went I, alone? I did. You know, I was single at the time. Impressive. It was, oh, I, I, traveling alone is, is the best. I'm sorry. I, as much as I enjoy traveling with my partner, with, with my friends, I get immense joy being in somewhere foreign, completely by myself. It's like a choose your own adventure. Totally. And it's like, am I going to eat this? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to drink this? Am I going to meet people? Well, that's the thing. It, it, when you travel alone, it really pushes you to do stuff, to go outside of your comfort zone, maybe more so than you would with with having somebody else by your side, for sure. But we, we just went to Japan. I'd like to go to Seoul as well. I've heard really good things about South Korea. Well, Japan is, is on my bucket list. Oh, man, you have to go. It was, it was, I've, I've been, I've done quite a bit of traveling, but I've never been somewhere as far or culturally different, I guess, than Japan. Just the whole time I was like, we're on the other side of planet Earth. Like it was just mind boggling. No, to it me. feels like you're on another planet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially, I mean, I'm sorry, I can't compare because I don't, I haven't, I don't, 
I haven't been to other places in Asia, but yeah, Japan was just another world. I thought you were going to say, I can't compare because I haven't been to Mars. <laughs> well, I haven't been there either. I don't really have an interest in going going to Mars. Too hot. 14-hour flight was long enough. How long is the rocket to Mars? The rocket to Mars? Probably actually quicker. <laughs> 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 you want to go to Mars or Tokyo? Yeah, right. That's, That's going to happen. I, I'm, I, you know, and it'll probably be cheaper to go to Mars. Um, so, what were your biggest standouts from Tokyo, from from Japan? What, what were the biggest culture shocks? Did you gig at all? Did you drop it, drop in an open mic or anything? I wanted to. It was just bad timing. Like they have expat open mics, and because in Japan they really like. Uh, you're in Tokyo, which is like a big main city, and most people don't speak English, um, which I actually really enjoyed. It was really nice to have to like mime and do these sorts of things and work a little bit harder. And I don't know, it was it was really kind of nice um, and learn a bit of Japanese. We stayed in this area called Shimokitazawa, which is sort of like a a hip, artsy kind of neighborhood. And there was actually an expat open mic, but it was two nights before we got there, and so. I just I didn't get a I didn't get an opportunity, but it was okay, you know, because I felt like uh, it's sometimes nice to take a little break and just sort of soak everything up and let it sort of inspire your humor later. Yeah, which which it ended up doing. There's something about traveling for sure. You know, when you're gigging, especially in a city like Toronto, where you're able to play, you know, a dozen clubs a month, you know, spread around, you kind of forget like, oh, I could go to Montreal for the weekend and maybe do some spots. But when you're in a country like Japan, you're like, oh, uh, my blinders are wide open. Like, how do I absorb all this so I can go home and be like, this is so going into my act. Totally. What were some of your observations? The streets are immaculate like they are so clean there's no litter anywhere but there's also no garbage bins so i don't know what everybody does with their rubbish because it's not like they're super eco like it's not like they give you things in mason jars and then you bring them back and you know what i mean um which i thought was really strange because in israel there aren't much uh, aren't many garbage bins but that's because they're worried there are going to be bombs in them which i don't think they have that i don't know why there aren't any garbage bins in japan i just had like a satchel full of crap all day it's a very minimalist society. Yes, that is true. That is very true. Which is amazing. Yes, it is amazing. They are very futuristic in a lot of uh, aspects, which I found really quite interesting. Uh, but uh, it's just so strange. They love playing video games and they're very into, you know, the games that you play at like a, an arcade or like at a fair where there's a claw and you try and pick up like a little toy. Sure. Um, claw like, game? Yeah, I guess, sure, when you were like eight. Right. Um, but it's like a thing for adults to do and you see like these adults like dressed up like Super Mario, like walking home with a big bear. Like they just came from the X. I don't know what they do. For a minimalist society, I don't know where they're storing all these little trinkets that they're finding. <laughs> In the machines. That's just, that's actually their garbage bins. You didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> and it just keeps like it's just a that's cycle. Right. It's recycling. And they just drop them off that's later. Right. You get to play by throwing in an item to recycle, and then you get to pick up a cleaner version of of what you're working with. That would be nice if that was what it was. Japan, Um, holler at me if you want some of my eco ideas. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's funny. Um, Something I did notice, though, is that there's, it's just, uh, it's so beautiful and clean and safe, um, but the air pollution in Asia, and I, I don't know what it was like in Korea, but the air pollution in Japan was pretty intense. Though the funny thing that they don't really address is they say respiratory illness and all this and that, but in, in Asia at large, at least from what I've heard from my partner as well, because he's traveled 
all over um, is that just smoking is like everybody smokes. And I didn't realize. Right. So in Japan, this is also something that's really interesting and backwards in my mind, at least you can't smoke outside, but you can smoke inside. And there's no like uh, like babies are just chilling and someone's just puffing away. It was very uh, reactionary, I felt, and quite strange considering, you know, how progressive they are in so many well, ways. Well, that's just it, right? You're, you're like, something's wrong about this situation. How can you guys be so electronically advanced, technologically advanced, and yet something as simple as smoking, which we know, you we, know. know. we know what it does to, yeah. to, and you live in a, you know, you're already having issues with pollution, yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, it, it, I, you also have to give it to Japan. They know how to enjoy life. Totally. Oh, so and that's uh, do they have is it also um vending machines everywhere? Not so much in South Korea. Okay. I would I'm assuming that that's like a very Japan thing. thing. Well, I I was thinking like it's so nice cuz you're like, "Ugh, I'm so thirsty and I haven't seen a store in ages." Boom. You want beer, you want water, whatever, it's right there and then like $4 packs of cigarettes, which is another story. But um I was saying to my partner like, "Why don't they have these in Toronto?" And he's like, "Cuz they bloody rob them all." And I was like, "Ah, oh, good point." Oh, see, that's the cultural thing. Totally. We can't have nice things. No, <laughs> we'll just destroy them. Oh, that's so upsetting. I know. Because it's like like, you want cool things. You want to complain that you don't have nice things. And then, yeah, because <clears throat> even with, like, the Toronto sign recently in Nathan Phillips Square. Was that defaced? Yeah. Like, like I think even over um, maybe even Nui Blanche or even a time before, people started signing it. No. How stupid are you? This is a monument. Like, if you've been to Amsterdam. Or, I was just going to say, you know, I've seen the Amsterdam one has, has, hasn't been touched. Immaculate. But, like, I mean, Europeans, yeah, they can have respect. nice things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Western. Yeah. Yeah, that's awful. And to the, do you remember the Leslieville sign? So it's at Queen and Jones. There was quite a famous one. I don't know if it was Charlie. Ch- no, because it was someone without a mustache. I don't know. They made him. Hitler. No, I think it was Charlie. Charlie was Chaplin. It? it was that big mural that, yes. with a yellow background, yes, right exactly. when you entered Leslieville. Precisely. I believe it was Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. I, I enter Leslieville once in a, in a while. In a blue moon. Yeah, there's like um, that really expensive fish store right there. Anyway, yes. that sign. Yeah, I saw that that somebody had made him into Adolf. Good old Adolf. They yeah. defaced it time and time and time again. So they recreated the mural. And now it's something different. And it's a man with like a profile. And I guess they're just hoping that they don't like put a swastika on his oh arm or God. something ridiculous. And it, the, the funny thing is, it's definitely, I, I, my first thought is this is not like some white supremacist person that's going out of their way to make, you know. A statement. Charlie, a, stab, a statement. You're, you're just making Charlie Chaplin into Hitler. It's like an easy yeah. bit. It's an easy bit. Fruit. Low-hanging fruit. So it's not like some white supremacist. Like, some stupid, yeah. drunken 20-year-old thinks That's he's it. hilarious. I mean, I'm sure his friends think he's pretty funny, too. Uh, so, yeah. Definitely can't have nice things in the Western world. I wish vending machines were more a thing here you know food culture in toronto is is very weird you have like really expensive restaurants and kind of good cheap restaurants but there's no real middle ground it's either like a gimmick or tacos you know what i mean (laughs) you know yeah so i would love even in europe when i was in amsterdam talk about vending machines Fibo. you know what i mean like i don't care if you're a feeble hater it's just like when you want it it's there totally so Toronto needs to get on a FIBO game or so. Imagine if we opened a pop-up FIBO in Toronto and like I the entertainment district. What that would do? It would kill. It would have to be almost like an ATM, like something that was like a. Ta- it couldn't be a freestanding FIBO. It would have to almost be like attached to something with 
cameras. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I was in Afiba way late than I should have, and my buddy from who lived in Amsterdam, he's like, "Okay, you you have to do it. Like, just just go and bite the bullet. Literally, they taste like bullets." So <laughs> when I went in there and I was looking at which one to pick out, a human hand went and put a fresh one in. It was like four thirty in the morning, and I was like, "Oh, there's just people here," and I think that's more security than anything. Like, mm-hmm. to, you always have to have at least one human in Afiba, even though it's meant to look like no humans are there. Totally. So, yeah, I think Toronto could pull it off with at least a couple human and bodyguards. Let's do it. <clears throat> I know, right? We'll open up like a Japanese FIBO. We'll like, yeah. we'll like, <laughs> we'll cross all of the things that the Western world misses out on. Totally. I'm into it. So, what other food experiences in Japan? You went for sushi. So, that's, that's also something really funny, too. So, I love sushi and there's just no shortage of it in Toronto. And I didn't realize that this was something that we've almost culturally appropriated and then like blown out of the water over here. Everyone loves it. But it's not like a thing in Japan. Sorry, excuse me. It is. It's a thing. It exists. But you're either eating spam sushi, also a thing, or you're. it's quite an affluent dish. So you're paying a lot of money and it's really quite expensive and very like shishi and it's a special occasion or you're just balling. Or it's like, crap like it's hard to find it's true it, and here it's the same way i mean it, in the western world again especially in canada or in, in toronto we're very landlocked mm-hmm. you know there's no fresh you know ahi tuna like coming up on our shores so we have to get everything frozen from japan so i would assume that it would be super expensive from the source no question did you ever you know, manage to go into like one of those cheap kind of uh, assembly line ones where they have the mechanical ones kind of pulling out and you can like choose your price by the color. No, I don't know why. We ended up doing, um, we went to Tsukiji Market, which is the famous fish market nice. in the south of Tokyo. And it was the freshest, most incredible maki I've ever had in my life. And and my my partner's not a huge sushi fan and he was like, this is out of this world we mostly stuck to we had a lot of ramen which was out of this world amazing ramen i bet a lot of there was a lot of fried stuff like i didn't realize that fried chicken huge in asia huge it's better in asia than it i'm a southern guy i love barbecue love good fried chicken we make fried chicken um here but um Asians, I mean, again, it's that perfectionist thing, especially when it comes to cooking, especially totally. when it comes to ramen, the perfection of the noodles, the broth. They, cook, yeah. they, they, they make the noodles from scratch, right? That's also something I really love. They do a lot of um, open kitchen, so you really see everything and how clean everything is and how fresh everything is. And that's why there's less waste. Oh, less waste. And also, I think um, I didn't see one overweight person, not one. And I don't know if that's completely subject to dietary reasons or I've also heard that it's a cultural thing, that it's a bit shameful to be overweight. They also are proud and they involve exercise. They're, it's, a, it's a pride thing to be healthy mm-hmm. in your day-to-day work. If you work in a factory, if you work in yeah, they an do, office. Yeah, they do um, like on construction sites. They do about half an hour to an hour of like stretches and movement as a company altogether, which I thought was really beautiful. That would never happen here. I know. And it's a cultural thing that has obviously taken them, you know, thousands of years to develop. And here we're very, uh, you know, it's funny. I I talk to like people that are in, 
uh, Europe or even in Asia. And the discussion about introverted, extroverted doesn't really come up a lot. I'm not saying that there aren't introverts or there aren't extroverts. I think in a Western culture, people are more like, yeah, I'm very introverted. I was like, no question that you're introverted on your own belief. But there's also a lot less people, like there's a lot shittier experiences here that we're not embracing you know like work whether it's in you just mean like we're more insular where the other cultures are not like if you go to to south korea you don't eat alone like eating alone is almost a shameful thing you have to go and eat with your group of friends like a table of four people is kind of the the standard like you are encouraged to make friends to go do social activities and when you speak and you're in a group you tend to eat more slowly and enjoy what you're eating and all those kinds of sharing yeah it's a cultural thing we community based that's yeah exactly you're meant to go out with your neighbors it's like a you don't kind of just communicate online and their technology it's in your face like and it's still a social aspect yeah everyone's on their cell phone who isn't on their cell phone this day and age you know i admit that i am too but they have this ability to either use that technology to help socialize or stuff like food stuff like these social interactions that are just more encouraged here it's just like i have a lot of friends that just rather have a quiet night in because they you know not to say that they don't have lots of friends it's just you're not able to just go out and meet random people easily in this city Mm -hmm. it's hard to to pick up you know people in this city it's always been said that toronto is not an easy city to just walk up to somebody at a bar and meet them i guess so i'm just really outgoing and i like to like make eye contact and smile and when i was dating or but i would just go for the gold like i had a gig the other night and uh i got there um embarrassingly early and uh i made friends with the guy next to me i made friends with the bartender but I mean, the bartender was probably working for his tip and the guy next to me was from out of town. So maybe that justifies the whole experience. But no, we can be more of a cold, insular type of culture. And I find that um, it just takes a, a certain person to maybe change that or make that different only from the perspective that I don't think if I uh, hadn't initiated conversation with the guy next to me, he probably would have been on his phone for the rest of the evening. When you're gigging. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing with different types of audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, a, the best way, I think, to transition this this kind of subject. You know, how often are you dealing with clubs that everyone's completely, you know, focused on you? Or how many times are you kind of reeling as many people as you can? Or how many times is it just like, wow, this is just like a bar that I'm performing in? Wow, it really depends. I find... And this is, um, may, might sound strange. I find that there have actually been a handful of shows where um, I felt that the audience was kind of all over the place. or they're talking to each other or, you know what I mean? Like they're just not that interested in what's going on in front of them. And then I get on stage and start telling jokes and they pay attention. And I don't know if that's just because I'm loud or I have a big smile or it just takes a little bit of time to prove yourself to them. I found that it's not that bad. I did a set, though, at an open mic last week, and I was the only woman, and that's fine, but uh, it's known as a real, like, bro kind of show. A bro show. A bro show. So I was like, I'm going, because I just want to feel terrible myself. So I went, and 
during only during my set did a heavy metal band play downstairs to the point where like it was shaking the room and i was like it was like god smiting me for like being there and having a vagina so that was really difficult to commandeer the audience because i was i was fighting with a an electric guitar and an amp and all of that um no i i find people are usually pretty pretty good at paying attention maybe i've also just found good rooms which rooms what rooms do I love to do? All righty. Uh, so Aaron Keeney hosts a show called Time Out at Lazy Daisy Cafe in the East, and it's it's one of my favorites. I love doing Dope and Mike, too. That was where I saw you at, which was uh, which is a really good... Uh, you killed it there. Thank you. That was really nice, because I did a bunch of new... I had a bunch of new stuff. I got there, and uh, is it Tim Golden? Tim Golden, yeah. So Tim Golden was there, and we'd never met before, and... Uh, I didn't realize that a lot of people were showcase doing their showcase sets. And so I felt like not only was I the only Nubian on the lineup, I was competing with a bunch of professionals who were doing their showcase sets and I was going to try some new stuff. So I was very scared, but it was a really warm, fun room and anything at comedy bar. It's really just such, I feel a great place. Um, People really go to laugh and enjoy themselves. Whereas even other places where people have to pay admission, I find, I, I did an open mic at the Rivoli the other night, and most people were on their phones. They were like, I, I know. Not. This is what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to figure out is like, Toronto a thing? Yeah. Like, is that a thing where you'd actually like people go out of their way to spend money to not pay attention? <laughs> you know what? I don't, I really don't know what it is. And I think, I don't know. It's, it's so weird. I think it's just, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this the other night because I did a show last weekend and there was a woman as the host was was presenting and she was so loud at the bar and I, and she had to pay $10 to come in. I was quite confused and I thought, oh, this woman's a trip. And then she went on stage and did a set and I thought, well, that's a bit strange. And then uh, I got on after her and she talked through most of my set oh. and I I, uh, I told her off and I didn't, and I didn't, uh, I really don't want to be that person. And I, I didn't try and, I just kind of asked her if she, if she still had more material to do, if she wanted to come back on stage because I could tell she was bothering the other people around her who had paid money and wanted to watch the show uh, and I don't usually call people out but it felt it felt really good <laughs> <laughs> so would a pot room be more better situated for your humor you want to know something so funny because I, I enjoy smoking weed and m- my boyfriend and I will like smoke a joint and, and watch a stand-up special or go to a stand-up show or just watch a comedy because you have a good laugh, right? And I remember when I first got into comedy, a female comic said to me before I did my first pot room, I was at Hotbox Cafe uh, in Kensington. Of course. So it was a great room as well. And uh, she said, listen, if nobody laughs, it's not because your stuff isn't good. It's because they literally are so high that they don't know what you're talking about so don't take offense oh yeah i i didn't uh and i brought that up because remember i i did a joke and and then you got it a beat later and you were like oh <laughs> i got it which joke was that oh oh, oh I, w- I was talking about the um the old smokers and how i feel like we're not investigating enough the fact that they're immune to poison it is a bit freaky right that's a great joke and so the joke was sort of i was talking to my neighbor and you know but i don't I couldn't really remember what she was saying because she's one of those people that once she starts talking, she just will not shut her neck. And then you kind of <laughs> waited to be and then you're like, I got it. And uh, I was explaining how I had done a kid that kidnapping joke. I don't know if you remember or not. How, how kidnapping sounds like a more enjoyable. A normal childhood activity. Yeah. And I'd done it at Hotbox the week before and there was dead silence. And then one guy goes, but how? Like just it just depends on the type of jokes, right? 
I don't like to tailor make jokes for a specific type of audience. I think it's just more me learning how to deal with other people, not necessarily reacting to them in the way that I would like them to. Yeah, because a lot of my jokes have like a little sort of flip at the end or or it's a bit of wordplay. And so when you go into weed rooms, they're like, lady, talk about food. Like, we don't know what's happening. <laughs> talk about food. Well, it's true. It's do, true. Do you know Brian R- Ward? I know the name. So he uh, he's a wonderful comedian, one of the nicest guys I've met in comedy yet. And he does a lot of food based jokes. Um, I think he likes he likes smoking pot. And I think, you know, that's where these jokes derive from. So he's often said to me he does really well in pot rooms because he feels like he's giving them what they want, that they're all kind of on the same level, which I think is sort of the hook. That's that's sort of like his niche. I mean, he's hilarious when you're sober. It doesn't matter. But uh, that's probably why he feels comfortable there. Whereas I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the space for me. So I was really quite chuffed that that uh, my set did so well at, at Open Very Mike. well. Yeah, thanks. You, listen, it takes kind of a stoner observation once in a while for a good comedy bit. Yeah. And if you just happen, if that just happens to be your, your vice, it's my vice, I don't yeah. drink, so I don't have any funny drinking stories. Me too. But people have funny drinking stories, therefore it gets into their bit. Right. But if you and your boyfriend are smoking up and, and laughing you're like there's a why are we dying here i mean obviously you know you can get to a point where anything's funny but you if you dissect some of that stuff you're like this is going in this is where this is how i mean think about like hemingway like i know i'm just like pulling a random name but he was a, a lush you know what i mean there's drinks named after him you know what i totally. mean like but we admire his work because it came from that place yeah. you know even mitch hedberg to me is like Right. Like that's it's this wordplay that you're talking about. And sometimes things are even the simplest things we find funny or say them differently because we're a little inebriated or because of our vice. And therefore, we have great bits. But I want to talk more about your wordplay abilities because you're a writer. It seems like you were a writer first yeah. before you did stand up. Yeah, way before. So way before. Way so before. I, I kind of did some research. You were doing some corporate writing and copywriting kind of stuff. And then you're like, fuck it. I got to start doing my own blog. Sticky situations. <laughs> Emphasis on the shtick. Exactly. I love it. Uh, I, I, I peeked through some of that stuff. It's not my favorite medium, hence why I do podcast. Mm-hmm. So writing obviously was like a form of paying the bills. Sticky situation is helping you kind of work on your comedy. Did you ever think that you were going to become a stand up? Did you ever think or people are like, you're funny writing, you're funny in person, go try it out. That's kind of what happened. I, I went to performing arts school and I didn't even I realized this the other day, like comedy's always been a really big part of my life. I've, I come I have a funny family, but uh, just stand up in general. Like I went to a stand up uh, show before or a professional stand up um, uh, show before I ever went to like a concert. Like I went to see Jackie Mason when I was like seven. You know Jackie Mason? Of course. Of course. Okay. Okay. I okay. probably saw him when I was that age too, because really? that's what your parents did. Exactly. Exactly. So I grew up with all of that and and Reiner and Brooks and and all of all you know Robin Williams and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so I, there was always that shtick, but I hadn't really harnessed it. I couldn't have imagined that I would do stand up now because as much as I love to like dance and sing and perform, I never wanted to have the attention on me. I didn't want the spotlight it made me really uncomfortable. So I sort of went to the back end of the arts and was writing. So I did a lot of editorial, like I wrote for Condé Nast Traveler and Cosmopolitan and that kind of stuff, a Groupon, I was figuring it out. 
Um, so were they. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, and then, yeah, and then I started writing this blog and I couldn't figure out how to f- gain traction because the internet's so vast, right? And my girlfriend was like, you just need to grow some and get on stage because that's the way people are going to see you and that's the way you're going to plug your blog. That's funny because it's usually the other way around. Mm. <clears throat> Hence why I started podcasting and having my comedic friends do shows because I'm like, let's extend your comedic brands. Like, you're on stage in front of 100 people, you know, every show. Totally. How do those people see extra material right. or get a vibe of who you really are before they get to see you again? Right. Because that's, if you go to LA, you know, I emulate this network, this show, all my friend shows from like the Nerdist guys or the Earwolf guys who are basically a group of successful comedians, Chris Hardwick to be one. And Chris was a comedian turned podcaster turned both. Now he's doing a little bit of everything, but it's this extension of your brand. Mm -hmm. It helps when you're in LA just based on the market. But I mean, Toronto is close. I mean, obviously Toronto is close, you know, closer than it's ever been. It's Mm -hmm. producing that kind of appeal. I mean, I pretty much talk about that on every show with every artist, every comic that I've that I've had on here. But it's just interesting to see how you started as a writer first. And then you're like, well, I, I, people can either maybe see my stuff on the internet or they can physically see me because they're going to go to this comedy club and my bits work, you know, in conversation or on stage performance just as much as they do on a blog. Right. But still, it seems to me that wouldn't be, you know, most writers aren't going to be like, oh, I love writing and performing in front (laughs) of, you know, X amount of people. You know, it just doesn't seem like that's an easy transition. I think it's because I grew up performing. So I did have a sense of being on stage and I felt like I'd had some time blogging to harness my voice a little bit. Don't get me wrong. It's been it'll be two years in January. And like I still there's not one show I don't go to without like prairie dogging until I get on stage. Like I'm constantly sick. Like it just I'm just like harnessing this fucking ulcer. But you're getting the right experience. Yes, totally. It it is. It's it's just it is. It's just terrifying. But I I found like it would be. Uh, it's been really good for me. I I I didn't need to live behind my computer, and I'm sort of realizing that now. I mean, there are times where you know you just bomb, and you're like, "That's it. We're moving to Sri Lanka, and I'll just blog there." Yeah, but I bet you have this amazing kind of breadth. Where you can have a bit that you're like, well, this really works well in a blog. Let's see if it'll work on stage. Or you have a bit that goes on stage. and You're like, no, this is probably better for my blog. Yeah. So that's great as well. Yeah. And I mean, I write, um, I wrote for a kid's show and now I'm trying to write other stuff. I wrote a yes. show that's getting produced. And... Oh, talk about it. Yeah. Wh- which one do you want to talk about? Whoa. Uh-oh. So like, I'm a huge kids TV fan. Okay, me too. Yeah. Like I, I'm... I just, uh, <laughs> so a, a Toronto comedian, Alex Nussbaum. Okay. Just an old friend, you know, an old acquaintance, I'll say. He was recently on The Odd Squad, a TVO Kids show. Yeah, yeah, and cool. I totally just like message him on Facebook being like, dude, you were on Odd Squad. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I'm a 30 year old man talking to another 30 plus year old man about his little appearance on this kid show. I'm like, sorry, no, Alex. No, credit where credit's no, due. I, I think Toronto needs 
to understand that there's so much good talent. Alex Nussbaum is one of them that are doing these little bits that are adding up. Amish Patel, you know, he's a great kind of comedian, but he, he he's really more of a, a TV kind of writer, producer, comedian. Mm-hmm. So he's been doing Dino Dan stuff. You awesome. know what I mean? So I love that you, this is the type of work that friends, but most important, the best comedians and writers are getting it. And, you know, I'm recently 30. You're in your 20s, I'm sure, still. The idea is we need to figure out what we're going to be doing as journalists, as mm-hmm. artists. We need to write. We need more work. And the work needs to come to Toronto to yes. be able to get into the hands mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. So what are you working on? What networks? Let's let's plug the shit out of it. Okay. So uh, so I wrote a few episodes for a kid's show called Lazoo. It's a preschool show um, that's meant to debut on CBC caveat being the head of CBC kids has changed three times in the past year, year and a half. Uh, so I have my scripts and I got paid, but I don't know if and when it's coming out. I really okay. hope so. It's All Japanese. Right. It's a beautiful animation. Awesome. I know, right? Uh, it's really wonderful. And, and uh, it's somewhat educational as well. It really inspires creativity in kids. So I really felt... Uh, I really felt great digging, getting into it. And I also, um, I, I come from a bit of a dark place with my humor, which I'm sure you, you know, we talked about. I appreciate right? it. And, and I enjoy that too. It's just natural for me to go there. So working on kids shows is really wonderful because all that stuff, as much as that's great, it's, it's also great to take a break from it and just focus on like, you know, color and levity and, and what makes a preschool or like a kid that has no idea that the world is what it is, you know, laugh and, and learn. And so I, I really enjoy that. Uh, but right now, uh, so I wrote a, a show. It's it's a live action sitcom called Preggers and a production company called Brank Cedar has recently come behind it. So we're pitching that soon. Uh, am I allowed to say what it's about? I mean, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, it's basically a, a girl um, who... Uh, doesn't realize she's pregnant until she's in labor. Uh, it's called a cryptic pregnancy, which happens more often than we think. Um, and not just to, you, you, I think the notion uh, that people are comfortable with is that like, if you have seven teeth and you live on craft dinner, then you go to the bathroom and then you're suddenly having a child. You know, I didn't know I was pregnant. That show on TLC. MTV or whatever. No, it, it, it uh, is TLC? on the learning channel. Oh, man. This is confusing. I know. Yeah, like Teen Mom. And then it's thought... on the learning channel. Yeah. What oh, is that? What are we learning? But um, so, yeah, so no. So she's just this everyday kind of gal. And this happens to her. And the show takes place 90 percent in flashback, figuring out who the dad is. So each episode, you cool. know, is where do you of... get experience to write for that? Hands on. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Each each episode is dedicated to a specific man who is somebody that I've had an interesting situation with. So I, I wrote a book a little while ago called Men Counters. It's a bit of a memoir. And so each chapter is but a man I've had an interesting relationship with in my life. Great name. And so that sort of. Yeah. But it's a tough one, right? Because I haven't really secured a brand yet. I haven't been doing this for that long. And so I asked, I told an agent about it once and he was like, yeah, but but this isn't the 1980s and no one knows who you are. And I was like, all right. That was also a reason to do stand-up. I realized that if I wanted my my writing to have real clout and uh, and to have real legs and have a chance that I really needed to to get my face out there. What advice would you give to a budding writer, a budding comic who's trying to get on shows, get an agent? Is that the first thing you did or did someone find you? I don't have an agent. So, um, and I know that there's sort of, 
some people say that it's really great for them and other people say that you know once you get an agent you still have to do a lot of the legwork yourself but then you're giving them a cut of it so I think it's more like when the time is is right um I would just spend my time reading and writing and experiencing um and just I mean it's interesting some people will say I, I met somebody recently and they were like unless you're doing three gigs a night you should just go home it's tough. I mean, uh, there's different mentalities for right. sure. And there's different things that work for everybody, right? I, For me, if I don't have a balance and I don't have time to be recharged and inspired by the things that are happening to me in life, yes, you have to practice. You have to go out there and get used to being on stage and being comfortable and speaking slowly and... But yeah, you got to you got to also just live your life, too. I think that balance is really important. And you are doing the extracurriculars. I find that a lot of comedians realize, oh, I need a podcast. Oh, I should start doing a blog of some sorts. You already have the blog. You're extending your brand being a comic and you're a good stand up comic. Thanks. I mean, for the two years that you've been doing it, you you are obviously learning. Who are some of your kind of comedic inspirations? I know you've opened for Judah Freelander, Wendy Liebman. She's royalty. She is. And that's the perfect way to say it. And I know that queen is so overused, but she is a queen. She is I came in to the room. She doesn't know who I am. Gives me a big hug. Asks me how I am. She follows up with me now even. She's just, you know, and she backstage, like, she listened to my set. She gave me advice afterwards. I mean, that being said, Judah Friedlander was very nice and Beth Stelling was was really wonderful as well, who I also opened for. But but Wendy Liebman, I don't know if it was like a, you know, a Yiddish kite thing, but we, we had a connection and she was just so wonderful. I expect someone in Wendy's role to offer her experience to comics just starting out. I feel like that's kind of like a maternal thing Mm -hmm. because the industry is just like Toronto, a little insular, you know, and it's tough and it's not easy when you see someone like Wendy, who's been doing it for decades and her style is so original, so original and that she's continued to do it her way, mm-hmm. you know, that's like Ron James to me. Like, I put her and Ron James kind of on this similar platform Kick of off. who they represent. Mm-hmm. It's nice to know they're giving advice because, you know, you, you would think that any comic in their position is kind of their duty to kind of offer that. I, I don't think a lot of comics do. And I don't think a lot of comics can take advice like, yeah. that easily or give advice that easily. So it's nice to hear. Uh, and that's great that you guys follow up. That's yeah. so interesting. She's the best. I mean, I, I wrote something silly. So Boy Meets World was a show that I was just, just loved growing up. And uh, now they have Girl Meets World. I mean, I think it's no longer, but I just kind of had wrote a silly tweet one day out being like, Please, God, will someone hire me on Girl Meets World? Show me a private message and was like, my husband used to be on Boy Meets World. I'll put in a really good word for you. And I'm like, who are you? But I'll tell you the piece of advice she gave me because it's been really helpful. And this is something that I would pass on. I mean, when I get to Wendy Lee, I shouldn't be telling anybody advice now. But um, she said, try one new joke for every set you do. One new joke. Just go outside of your comfort zone. See how it works. It's going to push you. And you won't feel, you know, because I'm still at this stage where I'm like, do I do this comfortable set all the time? Are people going to get bored of it? Do I put other things in it? Do I just do an entirely new set? Like, what do I do? I'm just floundering around like an asshole. 
And that was her advice. She said, I think my career would have gone much farther if I did one new joke. It also pushes you to write like a joke per day. So what? It doesn't do well. You have a six, six minute set that you already know is going to kill. So throw that in. And it's been really helpful. It's pushed me to write more. It's pushed me to be less scared. And it's helped me surprise myself. I'll think of something on the bus. I write it down instead of sort of throwing it away or being like, I'll make this a bigger bit. or I'll work this in when I have a relevant segue. I just do it. And sometimes it does great. And I'm like, this is the best, you know? Absolutely. So that has been some really nice advice. So Wendy Liebman, yeah, she's a queen. Someone else that inspires me is Amy Schumer. I know it's she's like a, you know, it's. I, I loved her before she was a household name. Sure. Um, Chelsea Handler. Ah, uh, love her. Oh, she is the best. It's, uh, it's interesting now. I mean, I, I really came to love Chelsea Handler from her books, which are fantastic. Uh, Lisa Lampanelli, the the roast queen. Yeah. Um, but I also, I love like Louis C.K. And, and Bill Burr and I mean, Robin Williams and Chris Rock or Kings and, and like Mel Brooks. You're hitting all the high notes for me, for sure. Yeah. Mel Brooks. Oh, no question. Oh, he's just, yeah. I mean, Joan Rivers. I really, I loved her, her shtick. She was crazy, but hilarious. Um, yeah. Uh, Jackie Mason. Because he was like the first. And I saw his daughter as a comedian, which I didn't realize. And a bunch of Toronto comedians were doing a show with her. And I was like, that's a goal that's for That's great. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Really She's probably nice. uh, accessible on social media. You should I contact think so. her. I, you know what? I thought about it. But then I, I don't know. Something stopped me. I felt a bit weird. But I really should just send her a message. What's the worst that can happen? I mean, this is how I see it. You're a, a young female Jewish comedian. I mean... The only other one that really pops into my head when I'm thinking about Toronto is Jess Solomon. Yes. You know what I mean? And I love Jess. Yes, she's very clever. Um, You guys have gigged together. So we just had a gig. I'd seen her just because I'd gone to support another show uh, and she was there. And I saw her recently at the Underground, but at Ladies Night. And she was on and uh, she was very funny. And we had a nice chat afterwards. And she was saying like she couldn't believe how many she really enjoyed how much... um, Yiddish I had in my set, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. So, ladies of comedy at the underground. Yes, that's a regular night. thing. I think it's a monthly thing. Okay. Yes, ladies' night. Great. About five of us. Yeah, it was nice. I, it's newer, so there wasn't a big audience, but it was just a really nice, supportive room. I mean, it's the best room for anything kind of remotely experimental. I know Ladies' Night is is far from experimental, but I mean, Joey, the owner, loves just supporting women in comedy, especially uh, because Toronto does have a really good hub for, and and I hate to say female comedians because it it gets such a derogatory because they're all comedians. They just just happen to be female. female. Totally. But the fact is, I almost... I mean, throughout my travels, like of all the major comic cities, Toronto really does stick out with women who associate as women (laughs) comedians. No, it is. It's really nice. And uh, a girlfriend of mine, and if you don't mind me plugging this. Please. uh, So my girlfriend, Jen Piasecki, she is a comedian as well and a very hilarious lady. And uh, we are starting a monthly at McQueen's Pub, uh, Queen and Pape in Leslieville. Um, that might mean that you have to come east as well one day. Uh, <laughs> Only if you two come back here and do yeah, another. Yeah, of course, show. of course. So we it's at McQueen's Pub. It's called McQueen's of Comedy, and uh, it's a monthly the second Thursday of every month. Our first one is next week, which is really cool. Um, we've made it like four McQueens and two McKings. Um, and, and sort of like a co-ed lotto spot so that it's inclusive, but we want to make sure that there's a, a real platform for women. Um 
because yeah, it is. No, it's tough because I do. I see all male lineups a lot of the time or quite frequently. And that's great. I mean, sometimes it just happens. But I always there's always that nagging bit in my head that's like so much wonderful female talent in this city you're telling me you couldn't get one lady on the bill like that you know and sometimes shit just happens well that's a recent controversy in toronto with that whole absolute comedy yeah. bit with the you know visually on their ad there was only one woman on it yeah, and Kate. i mean don't get me started about absolute comedy but i'm just saying toronto is so funny in so many different ways totally. and there just needs to be more opportunities for everybody for everybody that's it. I just and it's and maybe it's ignorant because I don't I don't really think about it sometimes because, you know, when I look at someone, I'm like, you're funny and you're a nice person. I don't care what you look like, or what color you are or what your sexual preferences or what your gender is. I just I like you for you and I want you to be on my show. And I know that but that is a bit uh, silly because I know that other people have different experiences subject to other people's ignorance. Um, not everyone's is liberal, but it gets tricky now because we have these. And you can stop me if this is a terrible route to go down. But I was just thinking about this recently. There's there's pockets of shows that they're almost affirmative action shows. Um, you know, it's it's only colored women or it's only queer or it's only female. And it's great to have those spaces and those safe spaces and those support. And I think that's really wonderful to have it. But I, I guess I was just thinking like predominantly female is great and predominantly LGBT and predominantly you know, colored women and all that's for me, the predominance is what's important as opposed to exclusivity, because then we're just creating this vicious cycle. I like I that idea. You know, I like that. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent, but it can be dominant in other ways that aren't just, you know, fat dudes and sweaters with beards. Exactly. Totally. So, you know, a Crimson Wave, for example, it's a great show. It's been on for ages. It's predominantly female, but there's always at least one male act. West End Girls, etc., which I think at Church Street Comedy, predominantly LGBT. And that's fantastic. But there's also, you know, I've done a spot there as a straight person. So I think that's what we maybe need to strive for more than exclusivity, because then you get resentment, right? I was denied a spot recently because I'm not of a certain XYZ. And I understood, but I felt a bit hurt because I thought, I know maybe this is a stupid white privilege thing to say, even though I, I identify as a minority. Um, but, you know, I would never tell you you can't come on my show because of whatever you identify as. Yeah, it's almost oddly regressive. Yes. In a weird way. You're yes. like, we're trying to support this to show that we're supporting it. But by not allowing anything else, you're kind of in a stalemate. It's almost weird. It's like you're you are benefiting, but you could also benefit more. With the addition of, you know, like, it'd be cool if if Crimson Wave or anything. I'm not to say that they should all of a sudden let jokes that are not supposed to be in a safe space. But, you know, is like, is Crimson Wave all female shows all the time? So it's predominantly, but they always have at least one man. At one, that's what I'm saying. Does it have to be just one to make it seem like they're trying? I don't know. Like, right. I don't know this comedy show that well. Right. It's not something on my radar. Mm -hmm. I know of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate anything that anybody promoting a safe space or a space where... I mean, my version of my safe spade is a pot room. You know what I mean? Like, I want to go to a pot room. That's where I find the things most enjoyable. Just like, if I'm going to go to a comedy room, I'm going to be the most relaxed. So, I understand having to want a niche or, or, or to expose right. a niche to, to gain an audience. But, you know, ultimately, are you limiting yourself? 
like how many comedians can perform in that space regularly that you're getting a, a good enough lineup that's going to keep that kind of show alive. That's how I think. Maybe a little bit too much of a, a producer, but I mean, where's the happy medium? How, how can I go to a show that I can support, whether it's people of color, LGBTQ, or uh, an all women? Like as a man, I don't want to necessarily go to a, a, a woman for woman show. You know, or right. like, it, it, not to say that I wouldn't enjoy myself. No, of course not. But it's like, it's kind of not marketed to me. Right. So, I have no interest in, in that sense. But if someone sold it to everybody with an underlining kind of representation of something, that would seems to me more easy to attend or, or, or easy for my brain to communicate that, okay, like I get it, that we need to feature more women in Toronto, with, which 100%. is holy shit we do because totally. the talent, I'm sorry, man, but like more and more women are becoming more and more funny in this city than you are. And it's, and it's an, an enjoyable thing for me because when I do this podcast and when I, when I do other shows, I'm always telling all my producers, more women, we need more female journalists. We need more. And not because I'm trying to like dominate or trying to expose that we're male dominant. No, but because there's no reason to not have. Well, that's just it. Like, I mean, we're trying to remove that stigma that we don't want them. I just so happen to produce shows with tons of female journalist but i want more because i think a they're smarter than than i am <laughs> I, I think that the the rule is if you're a woman you're generally smarter than i i am so that's how i look at it. if you're smarter than i am i need you to come do stuff i want to collaborate with you is, is my point well yeah but it, there's just all of these really hilarious insights well listen we make up half the population right listen women listen to comedy like there needs to be that we need to be able to to have that um you need to be able to resonate with with all the other people that being said though i think that there's a little bit of me that sort of realizes too like potentially these shows were produced from people who've had continual terrible experiences as a minority as a a, a queer person as etc so they were like you know what i'm gonna make a show and it's just gonna be for um for queer people uh, and that's gonna be my audience and it's gonna be niche and and i fuck if it's exclusive so from that angle i, I kind of understand that um if it came you know and th- there's some creepy shit so i understand maybe you know crimson wave was like we're just gonna make this predominantly for women and that was sort of the angle they came from um so i guess there's something to be said from that but i think that would be a nice shift would be the the predominance instead of the exclusivity because i i feel like if i did an all jewish show that there would be uh some feathers ruffled is that a weird thing to say i don't know i don't i don't i i almost disagree i would love to you and jackie mason's daughter to go on tour please (laughs) but again why would you keep it exclusive it would be so much more funny especially jews love non-jews okay people need to understand this because in our own heads we're like kind of alien you know we all suffer from that crazy stomach disease called judaism and you know we all we all yeah (laughs) but the thing is like we just have these like we're like a weird minority like we're kind of not a visual minority but we 
only really make 0.1% of the population in the world. It's it's this weird, you know, just it's so obscure to a lot of people because I, most of my friends in, you know, just when you meet people in and around the city, they're like, oh, you're Jewish? I never knew. I was like, it's not like I'm like, hi, my name's Alex. I'm a Yid. You know, like it's not you like. You like on the spot. <laughs> I'm not, right? Because I'm not religious. I, You know, it just happens to be a part of my ancestry. Of course. So, to me, as somebody who can be surrounded by predominantly, like if I go back home to my neighborhoods and stuff and hang out with all my old, you know, high school friends, when you finally leave that bubble and come to Toronto, you're like, oh, you guys are so much more interesting because you guys eat bacon on your cheeseburgers. You know what I mean? Like, like I was never allowed to, you know, I don't know, like, just like, it's funny when you leave your bubble it's so much more enjoyable to hang out with the people that don't remind you of, of that bubble. Totally. So. I mean, there's something to be said about someone understanding your crazy family or or identifying with whatever struggles you're going through or your, you know, all those kinds of things. But it's also really refreshing to be with, you know, people have said, you know, you're, you're with somebody who's, uh, you know, my boyfriend is is a guy. And so they're like, is that an issue? And did you ever think like maybe it would be easier if you're with someone who's Jewish? And again, it's the same for me. Like I have a Jewish heart, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a practicing uh, religious person. So for me, it was more like, it's so wonderful that we have this hybrid and I can learn all these things from him. And he does things. I mean, he put butter on a bagel and cream cheese on top of it. And I almost fainted on the floor. But like, <laughs> it was just, it's just nice to have that, that diversity and that different, you know, he's so laid back and like his mom doesn't call him 6,000 times a day. And I'm like, that exists. Like you're not, whoa, you're not paranoid all the time. This is awesome. Oh, so it's so great funny. to learn from each other like that. And that's just it. And I think that, you just proved my point. You know, I want to see an all Jewish or predominant Jewish show with somebody who kind of is the opposite. Cause it, again, I'm bringing up Amish Patel because he and I talk about how he has an Indian upbringing and I have a Jewish upbringing, but they're so similar. Really? Oh, the idea he was telling me that, the idea to be culturally Indian is becoming more of a thing in the later generations. So we're like you and I are culturally Jewish, Mm -hmm. but in the end of the day, if I am at a breakfast buffet and I see the end of the rainbow right in that bacon (laughs) tray, you're going, yeah, like I, I don't even think about my circumcision. So (laughs) my, my point is, you know, culturally we are so much more, you know, explorative, Mm-hmm. Hence, you going to Japan, you know, having the want to do this. We have this ability to, to travel the world, enjoy other experiences. And I think that goes without saying, if you're going to have maybe a predominantly something show, you got to spice it up with the opposite. You know what I mean? Like how many, if I'm going to go see 10 comedians that are all from the same background, from the same life experience, oh, how is that going to be fun? Right. So I want, I want to encourage, sure, predominantly something. But then, yeah, exactly. Throw that, throw that spoke. You want to think funny, though, just quickly to say uh, one sort of jarring thing that happened in Japan. Um, we went to Mount Fuji and we went to this like thatched hut village. And afterwards, there was just a bunch of little um, like kiosks, I guess, per se, for, for food. And uh, there were a bunch of different uh, dried mushrooms. And we were looking and one of them was called Juiciers. And I was like, well, that's just straight up racist is is what that is. So I said to the guy, do you know this is really, really racist? 
He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think he had any clue what I was talking about. There was just like no registering, no remorse. But it, it made me slightly, it made me slightly uncomfortable. They are totally on a different planet, though. Like, That's I, true. I bet he doesn't even know what that means. Oh, not not a clue. It was weird that it was written in English. It wasn't like I understood Jews and so kanji. Funny. <laughs> yeah, right? Like somebody went out of their way to write this. To put the translation, just so you know, this is what is a Jew's ear? Yeah. It wasn't even like a Jew knows. You know what I mean? Right. And maybe that was the joke they were going for <laughs> and they to- and they got lost in translation. That's totally what happened. Well, Sarah Starkman, you have a lot of shows coming up. I do. Can we plug your socials? Plug your blog? Yeah. You want me to do it? Absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, my, I can. No. My blog is Sticky Situations. It's Tumblr, so .tumblr.com. Except if you type in ticky, Sticky Situations, I don't think you'll find anything else. I hope not. And uh, my Twitter is uh, Sarale, S-A-R-A-L-E 87. I just went for like super Jewish. That's was I decided at that moment in time. And now it's on my business card, so I can't change it. Yeah, and that's 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 pretty much it. Well, thank you so much for coming on thank to you the for show. Having me. Oh, I'm excited to see your upcoming shows. Your your the East End needs a lot more work out there, especially. I mean, I'm going to say it: female comedians doing some stuff out there. I mean, I think it's a great breeding ground. I know Sandra Badalini does a lot of shows out She's there. The best. She is the best. Talk about some local royalty. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, yeah. So. Catch Sarah in the East End, catch her in the West End, and the Comedy Bar, lots of great shows. Thank you so much to Sarah Starkman for coming on to Ross Never Sleeps. You're listening to NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Sleep tight. <laughs> <laughs>